A rambling man, an outlaw in the music industry. He had 98 singles, with 16 of them going to number one on music charts. He made 50 years of music that people still love, and has ties to legendary musicians. And honestly, he's a legend himself. What Lies Beneath? The story of Waylon Jennings. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. friends and files, I'm your host Lachelle. I'm here today with my own outlaw cowboy, Dallin. Hi, it's me, your son Dallin. I'm here to talk on the podcast. Thanks. I- I'm sure real excited to hear about Waylon. I don't know a whole lot about him, but yeah, just from you telling me all the stories and I'm excited to hear about it. You know, it's what I love about the podcast is really digging into the stories and learning about people. And I knew quite a few of Waylon's songs, but I didn't know much about his life. And so I was pretty shocked by a few things that I found out. And maybe others will know these things, but I sure didn't. So I'm really excited to share this episode with all of you. Well, first, where did you find Waylon's grave? A while back, one of my listeners, and I'm sorry to say that I can't remember who, sent me a message asking me if I'd been to the Mesa, Arizona Cemetery, and told me that Waylon Jennings was buried there. And I have been to Mesa Cemetery quite a number of times because my husband and Dallin's dad has a lot of family there in the Mesa Cemetery. His dad is there and some of his grandparents and great-grandparents are interred there and so we go there pretty often. But on these trips there I didn't really do research to see who else was buried in the Mesa Cemetery. And so this actually came as a surprise to me that this country legend was there as well. Their website tells us that the Mesa Cemetery was established in 1891 and that it has suffered a loss. It has served the community with dedication and distinction for more than 130 years. They have earned a reputation for well-kept grounds, helpful and understanding staff, and affordable services. It is operated by the City of Mesa Parks and Recreation and Community Facilities. The cemetery is managed with a sincere concern for the public interest and great respect for human dignity. It's very well-kept, and for an Arizona cemetery, something nice about it is that it has grass. This isn't one of those boot hill cemeteries in Arizona that I've taken you to before that's rocky and cactusy and snaky. It's a lovely treed park that is all level. There's not any hills and has lots of grass. Most of the sections have the flat gravestones, but there are a few sections that have upright markers. And in fact, my friend Christy has two sisters there, and they both have lovely upright grave markers. Established in 1891, that doesn't sound as early as a lot of the cemeteries we talk about, but for Arizona, that didn't become a state until 1912. 
this was still the territory times. Exactly right. Anyone that died before these cemeteries were in Arizona, it would be those small boot hill type cemeteries covered by maybe a rock cairn or under a tree with a field stone. A few months ago, Brad and I went back to the Mesa Cemetery for the funeral of a family friend. And so after the funeral, we took some flowers over to Grandpa's grave and we walked around the cemetery. And it was really nice because it was just a beautiful day, even though it was December. And this is the time where all the heat of the summer in Arizona becomes worth it and why people flock to Phoenix in the winter. I was wearing a dress and a light sweater and it was just so nice to walk around in the sunshine for a while after all the snow of Northern Arizona. So it was just really a beautiful day. And I mentioned my friend, Christy's sisters that are there. Um, I walked over and, and found her family and sent her a few photos of me there with their graves. And afterward, we looked up on Find a Grave where Waylon Jennings' grave was and easily found it. His marker is quite simple for someone that's as famous as he is. Sometimes they have these big, you know, ginormous tributes to themselves, right? But his is pretty simple. It's a flat black stone with, with the lasered photo of him at the top. Waylon with his signature dark mustache and beard, long hair, and a black cowboy hat. And his name, Waylon Jennings, and his dates, June 15th, 1937 to February 13th, 2002. So something strange that I realized as I was writing this this past week that this episode will be airing on the anniversary of his death, February 13th. And I had no thoughts of trying to make this happen, but sometimes strange things just happens on this podcast. That's spooky. That's a little, isn't that weird? Out yeah, of all the days. That's, that's that slightly that... more than coincidental for sure. So maybe it's a fitting tribute for Waylon on is. this day um, that he passed away 21 years ago. Yeah. Also had his flying W sign. It looks like an eagle and two inscriptions and there's one on each side. On the left it says, I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine, a loving son, husband, father, and grandfather. And on the other side it reads, a vagabond dreamer. A rhymer and singer of songs, a revolutionary in country music beloved by the world. It had a bouquet of Christmas flowers as it was December and it had a small American flag placed in the flowers. A few cigarettes, some coins, and a few other small things people had left. Waylon Jennings is best remembered for helping to bring about that grittier, more rock-influenced style of country music. It was a little rockabilly. Is that a thing? Yeah. Rockabilly? <laughs> Rockabilly. Oh no. It became known as outlaw country music. Oh, I like that. And he was labeled an outlaw for challenging the country music establishment by recording how and what they wanted to and for their hard partying ways. I don't know if that makes him an outlaw, maybe a little bit of a rebel. But... Wailing Jennings was born on June 15, 1937 in Littlefield, Texas. And as a child, he learned to play the guitar taught by his mother. They were pretty poor cotton farmers and lived in a house with a dirt floor. And he says in his autobiography, that's how they knew they were dirt poor. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Literally lived in a house with a dirt floor. Yeah, put that floor. on a shirt. 
By the age of 12, he was playing in a band and debuting at the Mule Shoe Rodeo Parade in West Texas. I listened to Waylon's autobiography on YouTube, and if you're interested, it was, it was really good, and it's narrated by Waylon himself. And I loved hearing his own voice tell his story. And I especially loved his accent and the way that he said everything. My grandpa Austin was from West Texas, and I heard a lot of the same words and that accent and the way they said their words. It just sounded like my grandpa. And so it made me a little homesick. How so? Well, he put the emphasis on the front end of some words that we usually put on the back half. Like we would say guitar and he would say guitar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or hotel with the emphasis on the ho and not on tell. Whenever <laughs> ho and tell. That's kind of funny actually. <laughs> or he would say the police. Uh. <laughs> he was such a character and I'll have to tell his story here sometime soon because it really is a good story. By the age of 14, Willand was working as a radio disc jockey. He dropped out of school after the 10th grade and moved to Lubbock in 1954. There he found work at a small radio station, KLLL, KLLL. And in these years, he met and married Maxine. In 1956, at age 18, the couple would have four children, Terry, Julie, Buddy, and Dina. Unfortunately, it wasn't really a love match for these two. They had been dating and they married because they thought that she got pregnant. Brutal. And so they were trying to do the right thing, By only to thing. find out on their wedding night, no less, that she wasn't pregnant after all. Yikes. But they stayed together for years, but it was a rough relationship, which finally would end. That's what happens. But in these days, at KLLL Radio, he met early rock and roll star Buddy Holly. They met at a station-sponsored show, and the two hit it off. Quote, I was working as a disc jockey at KLLL in Lubbock, Jennings recalled. Buddy would come up and hang out with me when he was in town. I had known him for a long time, from talent shows we do around Lubbock. Holly's success gave Jennings and other local musicians hope. Waylon explained in his autobiography, quote, we'd lay back in the studio and play guitars and Buddy would tell us stories. Our eyes would bug out of our heads because he'd been all over the world. He would talk about people like the Everly Brothers and Jerry Lee and Elvis, unquote. Holly produced, financed, and played on Jennings' first single, the old Cajun standard, Joel Blonde, and then gave Jennings a job playing bass in Holly's road band. Waylon said that Buddy Holly tossed a bass at him one day and said, you have two weeks to learn this. I did always like bass guitar. Jennings played in Holly's backup band, The Crickets, for a time. Jennings told CMT.com, I never took the time to figure it out, meaning the bass. I just memorized every song Buddy ever recorded. I was terrible. I played <laughs> too loud and broke the amplifier speakers. I was scared to death. In later years, I got to where I could play a little bit, but at that time, I was over my head. He'd have been better off with a monkey back there instead of me. <laughs> Dang. He was performing with the group on that fateful night, February 3rd, 1959, and was supposed to get on that private plane with Holly after their show at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa. The weather was bitterly cold. The plane had been chartered by Holly following poor touring conditions on their bus, which 
actually resulted in the hospitalization of one of the band members for frostbite. Wow. That's a cold bus. Yeah. After their show that night at the surf ballroom, there was a coin toss between guitarist Tommy Alsop and rock and roll sensation Richie Valens for one of the seats on board. Valens won the toss. Jennings gave up his spot on the plane to rock star J.P. Richardson, better known as the Big Bopper, who had been feeling poorly. The Big Bopper was a big man, and the tour bus was always cramped and apparently cold enough for someone to get frostbite. Hmm. So being sick, he came to Jennings and asked if he could have a seat on the plane. And he said, sure, as long as it's okay with Buddy. Uh, you're not going with me tonight, huh? Holly asked Jennings as a snowstorm started kicking up. Well, Holly joked, I hope your old bus freezes up. Jennings remembers responding with a grin, well, I hope your old plane crashes. Well, as most of you know, it did. The plane slammed into the snow and ice not long after takeoff. Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens were all killed. Jennings said he never really got over his last words to Holly and how he survived the day that music died. And that's what the world called the deaths of these three musicians the day that music died. Wait, like like the like the don't don't say I, I the, like the like like the, the John McClane song? Miss American Pie, you, the that, day that music died. That's the crap he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. Are these guys the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost? Holy piss. I'm dead serious. That's Holy like lyrics. Piss. Oh, gosh, man. You All just right. learned something new, I did now. just learn something. I just thought that he was a genius, but I guess he was just a good old crook. <laughs> it was the symbolic end of the 1950s rock and roll, and those words haunted him for decades. Man. Jeez. Isn't that awful? Wait, it's Don McLean. For the record, I know it's Don McLean. I'm not an idiot. Okay, we're good. <laughs> Heartbroken after the tragedy, Jennings returned to Lubbock, Texas for a time and worked as a radio disc jockey. In the interview with Behind the Music, Jennings revealed that the painful grief he felt following the deadly plane crash. God almighty, for years I thought I caused it, he said. I was just trying to figure out what to do with myself, you know. I was a completely changed person. I quit for a while. I wouldn't even play a guitar. I wouldn't pick it up, he explained. Thank goodness he found his way back to Texas, his talent and his love of music. He started his own band called The Wailers. The Wailers. I like that. That's hilarious. <laughs> Did they wail, you know? Yeah. Wailing. You wail, wailing. Wail. It, it's kind of funny. Which marked the moment in time that his outlaw country career started and his legacy in the genre was firmly established. He told a story in his autobiography that was really good about this time in his life. And I'm just going to paraphrase it, but someone that he really looked up to, another DJ, said to him dj means disc jockey yeah oh my gosh <laughs> my life is a joke i'm an idiot no you're not you just i just thought it meant dude jamba juice i don't know what it meant but it wasn't that <laughs> gosh what's it what even is a See disc jockey you learn it's a disc jockey a dude who just plays discs but we don't play discs anymore. You can't be a CDJ. It was still called a disc jockey even before the time of discs. Jeez. He knew that Waylon was having such a hard time over Buddy's death and his friends. And he said, if you could, would you bring Buddy and the guys back? Would you just wish him here right now if you could? Could you 
would you bring him back? And he was like, well, of course I would. And he's like, then do it. And he's like, well, I can't do that. And he said, well, neither did you cause this accident. You yeah. don't have that kind of power. Yeah. You didn't just say something and cause this thing to happen. And I think that gave his, his heart a little bit of peace that knowing that he couldn't have possibly caused that to happen. Waylon said later, Buddy was the first guy who had confidence in me. Hell, I had as much star quality as an old shoe, but he really liked me and believed in me. I was so afraid for many years that somebody was gonna find out that I said that. Somehow I blamed myself. Compounding that was the guilty feeling that I was still alive. I hadn't contributed anything to the world at that time compared to Buddy. Why would he die and not me? It took a long time to figure that out and it brought about some big changes in my life, the way I thought about things. Holly was the first to believe in Jennings' talent and the person who was there to encourage him to be a musician and an individual, a lesson that Wayland carried with him throughout his legendary career. Jennings wrote in his autobiography, Buddy had a dose of Nashville where they wouldn't let him sing it the way he heard it and wouldn't let him play his own guitar parts. Can't do this, can't do that. Don't ever let people tell you you can't do something, he'd say, and never put limits on yourself. Years later, I'd be in the studio and the track would really get in the pocket and feel good. And I'd hear those Nashville producers saying scornfully, man, that sounds like a pop hit. And I'd remember Buddy talking to me, telling me they thought he was crazy as that freezing bus moved down the highway from Green Bay, Wisconsin to Clear Lake, Iowa. He moved to Arizona in 1961 to be closer to his new wife's family. Scandal. Wife number two. Jennings married Lynn Jones on December 10th in 1962 and later adopting a child, Tommy Lynn. They stayed in Coolidge where Jennings got a gig at a radio station, KCKY. Kiki. <laughs> yeah. A move to Phoenix found Jennings working a variety of jobs, including bussing tables at John's Green Gables restaurant. Jennings resurrected his singing career in small venues. He played at Frankie's Cocktail Lounge. He performed at a couple of Scottsdale spots, Wild Bill's, which was a cowboy steakhouse, now known as Handlebar Jays, and the Cross Keys, a former jazz club. He loved Arizona from the start, but something about it made the big man feel small. He said, you look at the mountains, and you don't know if they're Indian or cowboy. Interesting. He wrote in his self-titled <laughs> autobiography, Desert is still and strong. You ain't got a chance. You can't push it back. You just surrender to the surroundings. It's kind of true about Arizona. I guess so. I mean, I've never thought if the mountains were Indian or cowboy. But... I just, I mean, I think that means wild or tame, but... Maybe. Yeah, Maybe anyway. So. Soon he was playing at a nightclub called JD's. A massive two-level nightclub on Scottsdale's Road in Tempe. JD's was designed to feature rock bands in the basement, which they called the River Bottom Room, with country music on the main level, and it could pack in more than a thousand people. Jennings christened JD's in the summer of 1964 after construction workers convinced the club's owner, Jim Moosel, that Jennings was the top country act in town. So Jim Moosel went to see Jennings and was so impressed he drew up a contract that allowed among other things, for Jennings to help design the club stage and sound system. The owner's son, Jim Moosel Jr., managed JD's and remembers 
that Jennings earned his paycheck playing seven nights a week from 8.40 p.m. to closing time. The group developed a local following and even recorded some singles through the independent record label Trend. My Uncle Terry was a fan, and he would tell about going to see Waylon all the time playing at JD. Well, that's kind of neat. That's cool, huh? The club owner said, quote, when we first opened, it would be all of his most faithful people from the other places. The first couple of hours, nobody would dance. Everybody would sit and stare, and it was all very quiet. I never saw anything like it. He was their guy. But things perked up once the beer started spilling and the rock crowds from downstairs wandered up during breaks to check out the honky-tonk. Musil remembers sucker punches would fly when the wrong kinds of words were said to the wrong kinds of people. Jennings usually avoided the macho fallout, except for the night a jealous husband came to the club with gun in hand. Musil remembers ducking behind the club's bar and phoning the police when the man busted in after the show. There's Waylon and the band and this guy had them all laid down in the hallway, Musil says. Waylon jumped into a dressing room and slammed the door. This guy's yelling, calling Waylon a son of a bee. And Waylon finally says, I'm gonna go out the side door. And he slammed a couch into the dressing room against the wall to make it sound like he left. Of course, there wasn't any side door, but the guy ran outside to get him. And when he left, I shut the door and locked him out. He's out there pounding on the door, and then we all hear the shooting. The cops shot him, and he was left a paraplegic. Wild yeah, story, that's, isn't that's it? That's awful. Jennings became a local celebrity there. And when Nashville performer Bobby Bear passed through Phoenix and heard Jennings Bear, Jennings? Heard Jennings. Bear headed for a payphone to tell his producer, Chet Atkins, at RCA Records in Nashville about this raw talent out of Phoenix. Jennings had already cut some songs in the country folk vein for then-fledgling A&M Records in Los Angeles, but A&M demurred to Atkins, who signed Jennings to RCA. The singer's first session for RCA took place on March 16, 1965. In 1967, he was in the middle of a divorce with a new lady on the side. This guy! He married Barbara later the same year. He composed the song, this time, about the trials and tribulations of his marriages and divorces. Like this time it's gonna work out? <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Jennings moved to Nashville and, get this, became roommates with country music's Man in Black, Johnny Cash. Okay, this is the only part of his career that I actually follow because I just love Johnny Cash. Like he's like the greatest <laughs> person who ever, my gosh, he's awesome. But when they were on The Highwaymen, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is probably later, but. Right. Yeah, that's the only part of his career I follow. Is when this he was is on. where they became good friends. I'm trying to remember who he was, because Willie Nelson is the highwayman, and then Johnny Cash is a is a, he's a spaceman, and I'm trying to remember if he was the dam builder or if he was the oh the right. sailor, because you know they all have their little bit in the song. I was a sailor. Yeah. Right. Oh man. Exactly. Anyway, so he was with Johnny Cash. Man, that must have been awesome. Which marked the start of a lifelong friendship. Barbara lived down the hall in another apartment until his divorce could go through. At least that's, that's, that's dignified. Jennings starred in the 1966 movie Nashville Rebel. I did not know that. <laughs> which he actually detested making. He scored top 10's hits with songs such as The Chokin' Kind, number 8 in 1967, and Only Daddy That'll Walk the Line, number 2 in 1968, and his 1969 collaboration with the Kimberleys on MacArthur Park won a Grammy. 
That's what it won. It was a Grammy, which he won on he won on that from that song. See, the Grammy was won from he this. Won song. it. Yes, it was. It, it was it a was, Grammy. It was won to him, and not it wasn't one Grammy. It was it a just, one Grammy. Yeah, it wasn't just one Grammy. But it was he a won one Grammy. Grammy. He won it. He won it. I just yeah. Okay. Okay. I think I get it now. Okay. When I was researching, I saw only Daddy that'll walk the line posted on YouTube, and I played it several times and remembered that song. And it was kind of fun to go back and read the comments that people had left about how they loved that song and how much they loved Waylon. And one of the comments I really liked, it said, quote, when I was a little girl, my parents would clean the house every Sunday. My dad would play Waylon Jennings. And when the song came on, he would stop whatever he was doing and dance with me. I got up, in a, I got up on his feet and danced around the house. When I got married, this was our father-daughter dance. And I took off my shoes and put my feet on his, and we danced. Oh, that's cute. It was the best. So thank you for Miranda, if you ever hear the podcast, for your story. Hope you don't mind me using it here. That's fun. So here's a few lyrics from the song. Everybody knows you've been stepping on my toes, and I'm getting pretty tired of it. Stepping out of line. And a messing with my mind. If you had any sense, you'd quit. Because ever since you were a little bitty teeny girl, you said I was the only man in this whole world. Now you better do some thinking, then you'll find you got the only daddy that'll walk the line. So you can see why, yeah. even though it wasn't really talking about a little girl and a dad, that why this would become a thing and have him dance on his yeah. toes. Jennings really didn't like being told what to do or how to do it. As most men that I know. He chafed under RCA's tight reign, and at one point he also took a dramatic stand against the status quo. When Chad Atkins turned him over to staff producer Danny Davis, who I read was a particularly irritating, one day in the studio, Jennings pulled out a pistol and threatened to shoot Davis in protest of Davis's practice of what Jennings felt was studio bullying. I feel like that would just get you put in prison. It seems like that would be rough. His autobiography tells how Jennings figuratively also pulled a gun on the country music establishment with his outlaw movement back in the 1970s. It chronicles how his rebelliousness led to 16 number one country singles over the course of more than 60 albums. That kind of sucks. That's a lot of albums. That kind of sucks, though, that you write 60 albums and 16... Okay, actually, number one's pretty impressive for 16 it's, of them. Yeah, it's pretty, but still, wow, 60 albums? I heard something, it was like, I think it was from, like, Toby Keith on the radio, and they were just talking about it, but he was like, yeah, you gotta write, like, 200-something songs before you get one hit, and you're like, oh, geez, well, that's, that's a life. Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. Across 60 albums, with 11 of those LPs topping the country charts. Around this time, Jennings' musical style continued to evolve, taking on a tougher, more bass-driven sound. He worked on songs with such songwriters and artists as Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson. And as we know, he continued to work with these guys for years and years. Was Christopherson on The Highwayman? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Waylon was dubbed an outlaw in Nashville for demanding and eventually getting what rock groups had been used to having for years, which was the right to record the material he wanted in the studio he wanted and with whatever musicians he wanted to use. By 1971, Jennings reportedly came close to quitting music altogether. Jennings revolted against Nashville tradition and insisted on creative control, which was quite a daring move on Music Row. 
quote, it wasn't until I started producing my own records and using my own musicians and working with people who understood what I was about that I first started having any real success, unquote. He told the Nashville Tennessean. It was easy for musicians to understand what Jennings was about. During one recording session, reportedly, he threatened to shoot the fingers off anyone who looked at the sheet music instead of playing by touch and feel. He actually didn't read music himself at all. Hmm. It was all sound. Like he physically couldn't do it? Yeah, he didn't know how to read music. Interesting. The resulting outlaw broke free of the strings of Nashville at the time. Jennings' songs were propelled by what one producer called a Navajo stomp, which, mm -hmm. okay. That's a sound. A thudding, insistent beat accented by Jennings thumb-plucking the bottom strings of his chicken-picking Telecaster. The sound was stripped bare and potent, and together with Coulter and cohorts Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson, the outlaw movement, a term concocted by a publicist, made Jennings a star. Yeah, it did. Waylon's audiences included hippies, cowboys raising hell with the hippies and the cowboys, and punks. I'm a punk. I know you're, you're a, punk. a punk. You're a hippie, a cowboy, and a punk. I, I don't think, well, I don't know. I like trees. Does that make me a hippie? <laughs> he headlined a 1973 show at New York's notorious rock club, Max's Kansas City. And he toured with everyone from the Grateful Dead. He toured with the Grateful Dead? <laughs> yeah. And Metallica and Soundgarden. That is actually really impressive. That is, That's right? awesome. I mean, if I was Grateful Dead and Metallica, I wouldn't want anything like that near me. But apparently they were okay no, with that. No, because Waylon is legend. That's cool. Bob Dylan was said to be a fan. And John Lennon reported loving Jennings' take on Norwegian Wood. And he also <laughs> used the Hell's Angels as bodyguards. That's that's tough. I mean... That's like bareback donkey what? tough. That's epic. That is. In 1973, Jennings released Honky Tonk Heroes, which is often seen as one of the early albums displaying his new so-called outlaw sound. This new style was a break from the slick productions of traditional country music and began to develop its own following. And like we said before, this time was his first number one hit, and it was quickly followed by another chart topper, I'm a Ramblin' Man. And when you said that, I immediately thought of the, the Almond Brothers song, but I guess it's a different song. Because <laughs> damn, when I, I was, was born, born a Ramblin' Man. man. Yeah, I thought it was no, that one. No, it's not that one. It's, um... There's a lot of Ramblin' Men, you know? There can be many. But um, Ramblin' Man is one of his best-known songs. Not only was Waylon a Ramblin' Man, he was high on drugs, like many in the show business industry. They took pills to give you energy to perform and pills to help you sleep afterwards. But it wasn't only pills, it was cocaine and amphetamines. Jennings started to consume amphetamines while he lived with Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash, yeah, he was, yeah, he was all over that stuff. He always told the story that he went into a cave once and then it started like filling with water and stuff and he thought he was gonna die and he told God that if he like lived then he would like get off of drugs. And he, like, apparently he got out of their life. He said, I'm never touching drugs again. But then all his buddies say, oh, no, he was all over that stuff after that anyway. Oh, so. well, if you hear what Jennings said, that they didn't do drugs together. Oh. But that they knew that the other one was. Still got to be a little secretive about it. doing all the pills. Um, during the mid-1960s, Jennings later stated that he spent 21 years high on various substances and once had a 1,500 a day cocaine habit. 
which is a lot more. I figured out it's like four and a half thousand dollars. Are you serious? A day or something like that. I mean, that's like not exactly pocket change for him, but like, geez. He said pills were the artificial energy on which Nashville ran around the clock. And that's kind of a sad thing about the music industry, really, because I mean, happened to Elvis. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Not exactly with you know Michael Jackson, but it definitely contributed. Oh, it did. Hardcore. Yeah. You look at many, many stars, either in the music industry or in Hollywood. I mean, even Judy Garland. I mean, yeah. there's so many just beautiful, amazing people. And I think that they didn't realize, and he said this in one of the interviews I listened to, he said, we didn't realize they were addictive. They just thought they were like, medicine at first all the pills it was like oh yeah this gives me energy you know this like, like this is part of the business you got to do this to be yourself and then eventually right. you're all addicted to it and it gets all wild and it's just and then a, it, such a sad thing right and it like, just keeps getting worse and worse you and can't you be a popular music star without like killing yourself and i think that's less of a thing recently just because like all these guys kept dying and it's sad that they had to die so you know people around now could figure out their crap yeah Jennings got his first taste of crossover success in 1975 when Are You Sure Hank Done It This Way? Like Hank Will? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he made, was a big influence, of course. And we're talking Hank, Hank Williams, Williams, not Senior. Hank Will Jr. Yeah. And then now we have Hank Williams III that is doing music right now. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a third one. So this is the OG Hank Will. Yeah. But um, Are You Sure Hank Done It This Way um, made its way onto the pop charts. So he was kind of writing pop music, yeah. too. Yeah. He crossed over. Yeah. And around that same time, he was honored by the Country Music Association as Male Vocalist of the Year. Jennings' participation in the compilation Wanted, The Outlaws, 1976, helped him become an even bigger name in music, a number one hit on the pop album charts. The recording featured song by Jennings, Nelson, Tom Paul Glazer, and Jesse Coulter, who would become Jennings' fourth wife. This guy! This guy! He said he was a rambler. He's going through women like a deck of cards. Jeez, goodness. The couple even sang several duets together, including a cover of Suspicious Minds. He said, quote, When I met Jesse, I was pretty well at my lowest point. I weighed 138 pounds and I was bent on self-destruction. Wallerin' and self-pity was the biggest part of it, saying, Staying depressed all the time and stoned. Jess was the best thing that ever happened to me. He helped her secure a record deal with RCA, and she officially changed her stage name to Jesse Coulter in honor of her great-grandfather, Jesse Coulter. The couple started recording together, and Coulter released her debut album, A Country Star Is Born, which unfortunately wasn't successful. She moved to Capitol Records in 1975. The two singers quickly became the couple in Outlaw Country. Their duet, Suspicious Minds, scored the couple a Grammy nomination in 1970. I'm Not Lisa reached number one on the Billboard charts in 1975. And her album, I'm Jesse Coulter, also reached number one on the country charts. What's Happened to Blue Eyes also reached top ten on the charts. And in 76, Wanted the Outlaws album sold over a million copies. They also welcomed their new baby son, Shooter Jennings. That's a tough name. <laughs> You're going to be tough if your name is Shooter Jennings. You better be. He was born in 1979. And following his outlaw country roots, Shooter has made his own mark on the genre. Well, Waylon started to have some pretty big struggles about this time. He was arrested by federal agents for conspiracy and possession of cocaine 
with intent to distribute in 1977. Well, that's tough. A private courier warned the Drug Enforcement Administration about the package sent to Jennings by a New York colleague that contained 27 grams of coke. The DEA and the police searched Jennings' recording studio but found no evidence because while they were waiting for a search warrant, old outlaw Waylon, he disposed of the drug. The charges were later dropped and Jennings was released. The episode was recounted in Jennings' song, Don't You Think This Outlaw Bits Done Got Out of Hand. Interesting. <laughs> here's, the, here's some of the words. I'm for the law and order the way it should be. The song's about the night they spent protecting you from me. Someone called us outlaws in some old magazine, and New York sent a posse down like I ain't ever seen. Don't you think this outlaw bits done got out of hand? We started out to be a joke the law don't understand. Was it singing through my nose that got me busted by the man? Maybe this here outlaw bits just done got out of hand. We were wrapped up in our music, that's why we never saw. The car pulls up, the boys get out, and the room fills up with law. They came bounding through the back door in the middle of a song. They got me for possession for something that was gone, long gone. Don't you think this outlaw bits done got out of hand? What started out to be a joke the law don't understand. Was it singing through my nose that got me busted by the man? Maybe this here outlaw bits just done got out of hand. So he's pretty much just like, y'all know I did it, but you can't pin nothing on me. I guess. That's so ballsy. That's ballsy. Yeah. We call ourselves an outlaw, but let this get out of hand here. Joining forces with Willie Nelson, he records Waylon and Willie in 1978, which went on to sell several million copies. One of their duets from the album, Mamas, don't <laughs> let your babies grow up to be cowboys. <laughs> I love that song. I know you do. Reached the top of the charts and gave Jennings his second Grammy Award. He and Nelson shared the honors for best country vocal performance by a duo or group. Forever then linked as Waylon and Willie. Willie and Waylon. <laughs> they began selling records in numbers that had previously been associated with only rock album sales, and the Nashville system gradually started moving away from the producer-dominated order to the one in which artists helped share the power. For the rest of the decade and into the early 1980s, Jennings continued to make hits including Lukenbach, Texas, Back to the Basics of Love, and Theme from the Dukes of Hazard. Good for him, I forgot about that. <laughs> That's an the epic good song. Old boy. That's a song right there. In addition to creating the theme song for the television series, Jennings served as the narrator for the country comedy The Dudes of Hazard. That's hilarious. So he was kind of, yeah, he was the background narrator guy. And then just, one foggy day, things really hit the pan. Yeah, I got it. It's, but anyway, awesome. you'll have to watch some of those old episodes. They're pretty funny. Yeah, I remember watching like a newer one and it was real garbage, so I'll have to see the new one. It's just Southern A-Team. Yeah, you gotta see the old, you gotta see the OG. Finally, Waylon's drug problems really did get out of hand. There were some tough times for Coulter during her marriage to Jennings, mostly stemming from Jennings' addiction problems. During the early 1980s, his cocaine addiction intensified. Jennings' 1,500 a day habit, equivalent to 4,500 in 2021, was draining his personal finances and leaving him bankrupt with a debt of up to 2.5 million. Woo! That's a lot of cocaine. And if that was 
4,500 in 2021. Here in 2023, that's about 8,000, right? Yeah. <laughs> Though he insisted on repaying the debt, he started doing additional tours to do so. His work became less focused and his tours deteriorated. Jennings leased a home in the Phoenix area and spent a month detoxing himself, intended to start using cocaine again in a more controlled fashion afterward. But in 1984, he finally quit cocaine. He claimed that his wife and his son Shooter were his main inspiration to do so. And from his autobiography, he said, After about three weeks, I got to where I could sit for a time and feel my mind clearing out. I realized that's the end of it. I waited another day to make sure about what I was thinking, though I still felt I had only stopped. That was my keyword. I was in the car with Jesse one afternoon watching the desert scenery go by, and I turned to her and asked if so-and-so knew that I quit. She stared at me, and I realized what had just come out of my mouth. I didn't believe that I had said that. Did you hear me? I asked her, though I was really directing the question at myself. It had come from deep within, and we both understood it was absolutely true. I wasn't ever going to do drugs again, as amazing as that sounded. I had painted myself into a corner, and when I give my word, I don't break it. A month after entering my halfway house, I walked out the door slightly shaky, but feeling strong, at least physically. I was anxious to see what life was going to be like, though I didn't dwell on the mental hurdles that were sure to come. I sniffed the fresh desert air crisp in the morning, feeling it rush into my nose and lungs where once drugs had lived and breathed. I felt washed out. Back on the bus, there was still that $20,000 worth of cocaine waiting for me, the last temptation. I went in the back, unearthed the briefcase with the coke, and took it from the bus. I handed it to Jesse. You of all people deserve to do with this whatever you want. She went in the bathroom, poured it all in the bowl, and hollered, Hallelujah! She was the happiest girl in the world, and I was the happiest boy. For a long time, it was like I'd lost somebody close to me. I was in mourning, pining away. The best way I could explain it is, there's a guy over there. He's another person. You can do anything you want to because you can blame it on him. He's a good time Charlie and a lot of fun. You really like him because he's your escape from every damn problem you've got in the whole world. And when you quit drugs, he dies. Lay out a line, and he's alive again. That's why you gotta stay away from him, change playmates and playgrounds. It's like the crabs they sell on street corners in Mexico. If you watch, they're just milling around with nothing to keep them in the pan but a lip about an inch high, until you see one try to get out and another pull him back. Your drug friends don't want you to quit. I was sitting with Shooter in a restaurant booth. He was on the inside and he got his coloring book out. He was all of five years old. He put his left arm through my right, and we sat there for about an hour while he colored. Shooter hadn't ever done that before. I'd never been able to sit still for so long with him. I wasn't about to move my arm." Unquote. Chris Christofferson described the couple's relationship as a beautiful love affair. Jesse told CMT, It was fun. It was exciting. It was a wild ride in the early years, and yet he kind of made things settle. He had a strength about him, something about him that almost would stamp things. That's just how it was. After he beat his addiction, he returned to a scaled-down career with stints on MCA and Epic through the late 1980s and early 1990s. Jennings was also something of a role model by going back to earn his GED. Remember how he 
dropped out of school. Oh yeah. He got his high school equivalency diploma. He felt he owed it to his son to prove that education was really important by finishing high school himself. Like way later in life? Yeah. Next, Jennings teamed up with Christofferson, Cash, and Nelson to form the Highwaymen. They hit the top of the country charts with Highwaymen, <laughs> which was included on their successful album of the same name, Highwaymen. Highwaymen. The 1990 follow-up album, Highwayman <laughs> 2, did not fare so well. It didn't do as good as the yeah, first Yeah, I listened to it. It wasn't really good, but it, it, it's, it's, just, it's just good because it's them, but it's not like, oh! Yeah. Like the first one was. While he had a tough time getting his music played on country music stations, Waylon remained a popular performer, touring extensively until 1997. He even played a few dates on the 1996 Lollapalooza tour, better known for showcasing alternative rock acts. And around this time, Waylon candidly shared his many ups and downs in the autobiography that we keep talking about, Waylon in Autobiography. Decades of excessive smoking and drug use took a large toll on Jennings' health in addition to being overweight and a poor diet, which resulted in his developing type 2 diabetes. Yeah, that's no fun. In 1988, four years after quitting cocaine, he finally ended his six-pack-a-day smoking habit. That is, that's a, that's a, that's a probably a good choice. Yeah. I mean, you know, smoking six packs a day, man, you know. Since you're 12. Oh. Woo. Jennings had trouble walking in his later years, but that did not stop him from making music. In 2000, Jennings recorded several performances at Nashville's Ryman Auditorium for the album Never Say Die Live. That same year, he underwent heart bypass surgery. By the year 2000, his diabetes got worse and the pain reduced his mobility to the point where he was forced to end most of his touring. That same year, he had to undergo surgery to improve his left leg's blood circulation. In October 2001, Jennings was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. It took him that long. I, I don't know what their problem was, but apparently. Jeez. But he was unable to attend the ceremony due to the pain caused by his diabetes. That's sad. On February 13th, 2002, Jennings died in his sleep from complications of diabetes at his home in Chandler, Arizona, aged 64. He was buried in the city of Mesa Cemetery in nearby Mesa. And at his memorial service on February 15th, his wife, Jessie Coulter, sang, Storms Never Last. They had been married for about 33 years. A spokesperson said that Jennings was buried after the graveside service, but declined to, to provide details, saying that Jennings' final wish was for a quiet funeral without fanfare. Jesse said through the spokesperson that she hoped to disclose plans the next week for a public memorial service in Nashville. Now this part is kind of fun. Friends and fans alike mourned the passing of the country music superstar. Waylon Jennings was an American archetype, the bad guy with the big heart. Christofferson told the Los Angeles Times, despite his difficult final years, he was filled with creativity and joy, said his son Shooter. To People magazine. Shooter Jennings has followed his father's footsteps playing in a number of bands. With his backup band, the 357s, is that perfect for a guy named Shooter? 357 Magnum Smith and Wesson. <laughs> he put together an album of his father's music consisting of tracks recorded years before Waylon's death. The recording 
Wayland Forever was released in October of 2008. They just did that. Well, I, I say just did that. It was probably a couple years ago. They just did that with Johnny Cash, and they did a tribute album to like a lot of his like songs that yeah. never came out, and they did it. It was like his poems and stuff that he wrote, and so like Allison yeah. Krauss and like Brad Paisley, they all did some in like Brooks and Dunn. So it was pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, those were that was really neat. So I, I like it when they do stuff like that. You know, kind of carrying it on. I normally don't like tribute albums, but those ones are pretty good. Yeah. On July 6, 2006, Jennings was inducted to Guitar Center's Rock Walk in Hollywood, California. Jesse Coulter attended the ceremony along with Chris Christopherson, who was inducted on the same day. On June 20, 2007, Jennings was posthumously awarded the Cliff Stone Pioneer Award by the Academy of Country Music. During the ceremony, Ray Scott sang Rainy Day Woman, and the award was accepted by Buddy Jennings. That's his son, Buddy oh, Jennings, after the named Buddy after Holiday. Buddy Holly. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and in 2017, Coulter released the memoir, An Outlaw and a Lady, a memoir of music, life with Waylon, and the faith that brought me home. I haven't read that, but I think that that would be really interesting. He said to CMT.com in 1999, if anything I've ever done is remembered, part of it is because of Buddy Holly. He said that the main thing that he learned from Buddy was attitude. Holly refused to compromise when it came to his music. Jennings also stayed true to his musical instincts and made a number of landmark recordings that helped shape the course of country music. Of course, he was known for his rugged individualism and was dubbed an outlaw. And they talked a lot about this. There was a lot of articles on him, of course, after he passed away. Anyway, this is the fun part. I was able to find a CMT.com article that talked about the service that they held to honor Waylon Jennings in the best way possible with music at the Ryman Auditorium. And it said in the article, in a memorial service that was by turns raucous, rocking, and reverent, <laughs> artists ranging from Charlie Pride to Chris Christopherson to Shooter, they paid tribute to him by songs and stories and the service was actually open to the public and the Ryman's main floor was reserved for family and friends and then the 1000 seat balcony was open to the general public on a first come first serve basis and so fans started arriving of course long before the start time at 7 30 p.m and by the time the doors opened at 7, a double line of waiting people snaked from the Ryman doors down 4th Avenue to Broadway. Fans spent the time swapping stories about Jennings, waving to the celebrities arriving in tour buses and limousines. And so they're yelling, there's Emmy Woo, I saw Rodney Crowell, I said hi to Hank Jr. You know, <laughs> they're all excited. But the service was dubbed, I've always been crazy a celebration of the life and legacy of Waylon Jennings. And it began with Shooter taking the stage, which had a large backdrop of Jennings' signature flying W logo, a large picture of him and two tall vases of red roses flanking his familiar Telecaster guitar with the hand-tooled leather cover with a black cowboy hat perched atop its neck. Shooter Jennings welcomed the crowd and explained that although Johnny Cash had been scheduled for the service and was supposed to be the first musical performer, his doctors had advised him against traveling from his winter home in Jamaica. What? And he said, I talked to him and Johnny said to enjoy yourselves and honor Waylon. And so with that, 
Travis Tritt took the stage. If you know Travis Tritt's music, you can tell that there's a lot of this influence that was on him from Waylon. And he remarked that Waylon had one foot firmly in country and one in rock and roll, and I've tried to pattern myself after him. Tritt launched into a rocking version of Jennings' 1973 song, Lonesome, Henri, and Mean, backed by the 10-piece Waymore Blues Band, Jennings' last musical ensemble. And he was followed by the young group Cross-Canadian Ragweed, who performed Only Daddy That'll Lock the Line, and then they had a bunch of video clips and different periods of Jennings' life and career, which is really interesting because you look like at the beginning and he had that slicked back hair, kind of Elvisy, mm-hmm. um, and Buddy Holly, you know, with the big wings, and followed by a lengthy video clip of different periods of Jennings' life and career, anchored by a recurring scenario of actor Robert Duvall portraying a shrink, interviewing Jennings as his patient. The biggest laugh of the night came during the airing of a clip of Jennings on the TV show Politically Incorrect, in which he said, we don't want to impeach Clinton, we just want somebody to kick his ass. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. It's kind of funny, actually. Charlie Pride came on stage to sing Good Hearted Woman, and to recall that Jennings had offered him that song before he himself recorded it. Oh. He also flashed a ring that Jennings gave him years ago, which he still wears. He was followed by Hank Williams Jr., who said that Jennings had been a father figure to him and took him on the road with him as an opening act when Hank Jr. was still a teenager. Quote, when I was 16, he said, Waylon let old Bo Cephas go out there. He could have had the pick of anybody he wanted, unquote. Williams sang his emotional composition, Eyes of Waylon, and was interrupted by an audience ovation for the line, the first triple platinum in this town is hanging on his wall. (laughs) A reference to Jennings' 1979 Greatest Hits album, which became Nashville's first three million selling album and has since been certified quadruple platinum. Then Chris Christopherson, he prefaced his version of Jennings' I Do Believe by saying, quote, if I ever thought I'd be singing to honor Waylon in the Ryman Auditorium, it might have helped me through some hard spots, unquote. Another series of videos was shown featuring video of Jennings, Wild Ones, and a kid rock video in which he sang Jennings' theme song from Dukes of Hazard and paid homage to Jennings. There were a ton of people that sent emails of condolences that were read to the crowd, Kenny Rogers, yeah. Paul Simon, yeah. Billy Bob Thornton, Neil Diamond, yeah. James Garner, Metallica lead singer James Hetfield. Hey. And their lengthy messages were very heartfelt. And the latter got a great cheer from the balcony crowd, which was made up of staunch and very vocal Jennings fans. There was more black leather showing in the balcony than on the stage and on the ground floor combined. And there were black cowboy hats up there galore. One fan t-shirt read, Waylon effing Jennings, as he used to introduce himself in shows long ago. I love it. Of course, David Lee Murphy, the song had to be sung, Don't You Think This Outlaw Bit's Done Got Out of Hand, and Are You Sure Hank Done It This Way, and This Is One Of Those Songs I'd Wish I'd Written, and then the Waymore Blues Band did a rousing version of Never Say Die. 
Mayfeld prefaced Shooter Jennings' performance with his L.A. band Stargun by saying, Jesse said that Waylon wanted Shooter to sing I've Always Been Crazy at his funeral. And Shooter and his metal band fused very well with his father's Waymore's Blue Band on the song, with Shooter's fiery vocals and his band turning metal guitars, alternating with lively fiddle and piano and trumpet solos. This may be the changing of the guard, said Mayfield after the song. Folksy minister and author Wilde Campbell delivered what he called the geriatric part of the program and called Jennings a renegade, an outlaw, a man of faith, and a man of music. He was ministering all these years, and his ministries go on. We bid him Godspeed with the words of another bard, Good night, sweet prince, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Amen. Billy Ray Cyrus walked on stage with an acoustic guitar to begin Amazing Grace, on which he was joined first by Travis Tritt and then by Chris Christopherson. The song concluded by Cyrus urging the audience to stand and sing along, which became a very rousing version of the very familiar anthem. And the service ended with the first public hearing of the last song Jennings recorded, which was played over a darkened stage. The Dream is a lovely piano-based ballad comparing life with a dream, which Jennings concludes by singing, I've had it both ways and the dream could never compare. Shooter Jennings returned to bid all a good night and to say thank you for coming we hope you enjoyed yourselves we sure as hell did well dallin we learned a lot about old Waylon, didn't we yeah yeah he wasn't always on like you know my top you know a couple artists i always listened to but i always had respect for he sounds like he's kind of mainstream now because he really led the charge to a lot of the music that i listen to now i listen to a lot of that that just tough just rock kind of grunge not grunge but you know like outlaw yeah. country yeah and it's just a little bit more fun and I, I like it a lot more and I, he definitely led the charge on that so when i was listening to his music you know to kind of start this i was like oh it just sounds like everything i listened to but then when you know getting into this i was like well he he made this sound it's because this is his sound yeah so i think it's awesome yeah i've had his songs stuck in my head all week as i've been working on this and and that just shows like how good they are and how catchy they are oh, yeah. that you just him over and over again. So thanks for helping me tell his story today, Dallin. Absolutely. Yeehaw. Old Waylon, he was best known for being a musical rebel and for helping to popularize the grittier, more rock-influenced genre known as outlaw country music. He loved to be in control and he rarely allowed others to make decisions for him. And even then, he'd famously say, quote, there's always another way to do things my way. Unquote. He was among country music's most notable renegades and stubborn individualists. Thanks for joining us. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. <laughs> <laughs>